For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit for you. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the entire law. You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But the only thing that counts is faith working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? Such persuasion does not come from, those, from the one who calls you. A little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. I am confident about you in the Lord that you will not think otherwise. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. But my friends, why am I still being persecuted if I am still preaching circumcision? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would castrate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an occasion for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceived competing against one another, envying one another. Let's pray together. Father, may you grant us the grace to hear your word today. And not only to hear it, but to listen to it and to love it and to let it animate our lives. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord, the Word become flesh, and in the power of the Spirit by whom we live. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we challenged you all to be reading through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and I hope uh, that you have done that. If you've not been doing that, here's the good news. We are justified by our faith and not by our works. And there is grace. And you can begin to do that today. We have two more weeks left in the series. Go home, read Galatians today, uh, and read it through this week in preparation for our last step in the sermon series uh, coming up next week. So just to review quickly where we've been over the last month. We began by talking about what Paul means by the gospel and saying that for Paul, the gospel is a matter of revelation. It's a gift from God and not something that we've invented on our own. And then we said that the gospel is a matter of justification by faith, that we are put into a right relationship with God uh, by our faith or by the faithfulness of Christ in, which, in response to which we have faith. 
And then last week we talked about what it means for us to be heirs to the promise of Christ. That we have become a part of the promise that God offered from the very beginning. That through Abraham the whole world would be blessed. And God has done that through Jesus himself. And we get to be a part of that. And here this week we come to the, perhaps the climax of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Where he tells them that the gospel is a matter of freedom in Christ. That Christ has granted us freedom. Freedom from the law. Freedom from the desires of the flesh. And freedom to love as God has called us to love. And to be free in the spirit. The kind of freedom that Paul is talking about is not, not political freedom, though that's a very good thing. And he's not talking about personal freedom, which you may or may not have depending on the circumstances of your life. He is talking about the freedom that comes when we accept the gift of Christ, that we can live in a new way, that Christ can transform our lives, that we can be made alive by the Spirit and live guided by the Spirit. And so that's the kind of gospel, that's the kind of freedom I want to talk about about this morning, that we are free in Christ, free first from the law, then free to love, and free in the Spirit. And so let's talk, start with the very beginning of those three. Free from the law. Now you may have noticed as we read this that Paul seems to be a little bit upset. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Listen, if you want to be justified by the law, you've cut yourself off from grace. A little yeast leavens the whole dough. That's the first century Jewish way of saying uh, one bad apple spoils the bunch. In other words, if you let this little bit of false teaching enter in among you, it'll soon, it will soon grow and spread and consume you. And then perhaps most pointedly, he says, you folks who are so interested in circumcision, I wish that you would go the whole way and castrate yourselves. I bet you didn't expect to hear that on Sunday morning. Why? Why is Paul so upset? Well, he's so upset because this goes to the core of the gospel itself. Now, you've got to remember the context, and Fred had talked about this the other week. Some folks had come in after Paul and had told the Galatian converts that if they wanted to be real, good, proper Christians, then they needed to obey the Jewish law, beginning with Circumcision. Circumcision was the sign that you were going to obey Torah uh, for Jewish males. And uh, after that, you would always observe the Jewish law. And by the way, whenever we talk about law here, we're not talking about just sort of generic rules. We're talking about the Torah, the first five books of, of what we now call the Old Testament, the Jewish law. Uh, the dietary regulations that you read about in Leviticus and other places. Uh, rules on what you can wear and what you can do and when you can work. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the law. And Paul had uh, told the Galatians, he'd preached earlier, and, and we talked about this the other week, that the law was meant to be a temporary thing. A good thing, yes, but a temporary thing. It's sort of like this. When I uh, first joined the military, I, I went through ROTC, and the way Air Force ROTC works is first, your first two years are just there at the college, and then over the summer between your sophomore and junior years, you go to what's basically boot camp. We called it field training, but it's the same kind of idea. And as you may know from your own experience, or maybe you saw on television uh, or sort of the popular notions of what, what boot camp is like, uh, you live a very regimented life. 
They expect you to fold your shirts in the exact right way. You have to make your bed every single day in the exact right way. Your uniform is inspected. You're expected to march and stay in time. And if you don't do those things right, you begin to accumulate demerits. And I got more than a few. Uh, and as you accumulate those demerits, you have, to, you have to work off the penalty. Now, once you graduate from boot camp or field training or whatever and go off and, and serve on active duty, most of that stuff you're never going to do again. I swore I'd never make another bed. Uh, and I've made as few as I possibly could. Uh, I never folded my shirt in that particular way again. I never marched a single step anywhere in my time on active duty in the military. Well, why make you go through all of that stuff in boot camp? It's to serve a purpose. And that purpose is to teach, you, to teach you discipline, to teach you esprit de corps, to teach you attention to detail, coolness under pressure, those sorts of things. In the same way for Paul, the Jewish law was meant to be a tutor, a guide, a temporary measure to make God's people unique until the full promise could come, the promise that came in Jesus. And so for those who want to come in and tell the church in Galatia that you need to follow all of the rules of Torah, they're making a fundamental mistake. They're, they're mistaking the temporary measure. They're mistaking the good thing for the ultimate thing. And they says, Paul wants them to understand, if you insist on following Torah, you've substituted this temporary measure for the great, good, ultimate thing that you are being offered in Christ. Now, we probably aren't terribly tempted to follow Jewish dietary regulations or work regulations or things like that. Um, and so for this, we may have to make a bit of an analogy. But we are tempted by sometimes a similar thing. And that is to think that we are Christians because of the rules that we follow. And in this case, not the rules that are given uh, by God to the people of Israel, but the rules that we sort of have made up for ourselves. We may think that to be a good Christian means you, you dress in the right way. Or to be a good Christian means that you pay your taxes and are a good citizen. Or to be a good Christian means that you never hover in the left-hand lane uh, and you never text and drive. All those things are good things. But sometimes we mistake being a good person for being a Christian. There are a couple of sociologists, uh, Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton. Uh, a few years ago, in a book called Soul Searching, uh, they published some research that they had done about the religious attitudes of American teenagers, which of course reflect what they've, what they've gathered from parents and grandparents. And they said that most American teenagers who purport to be Christians uh, believe something that the, these two sociologists called moralistic therapeutic deism. And you can break that down by the three words. Deism, they believe that there is a God. All right, they believe that much. Moralistic, they believe that God wants them to do good things. Uh, they should be nice to people. They should be fair to people. They should be good, good citizens, good people. And that it's, it's therapeutic. God wants to help them with their problems, that God wants to do good things for them. And for your average teenager out there in America, in the church, um, and for many adults as well, that's what they think Christianity is. God wants to bless you. God wants you to be good. And there's a God. That's it. We can go home. What that vision misses out is the great gift that we've been offered in Christ. 
Not something that we could earn ourselves by the right set of moral behavior, as important as our response to God and our behavior is. Not something that's simply there to to bless us in a therapeutic, therapeutic way and to make us feel good, but something that's there to absolutely transform our lives. And what we often do is we substitute something about ourselves, our behavior, the benefits that we may get from, for something about Jesus. We miss the good news that Christ has set us free and that we have something that we couldn't have possibly earned or built for ourselves. We have what Paul calls the hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness. That's, what, that's Paul's way of saying that we wait for the promise of Jesus to make all things right, that we've gotten a glimpse of already and what he's done for us in the cross. And so to be a Christian, to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, isn't simply to submit ourselves to the Torah or to the law, uh, even if it's a law of our own making. Rather, it's something else. It's the freedom, it's the freedom that God has given us to love. Let's go back and look at Galatians 5, beginning with verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. For Paul, the freedom that is given us through the gospel is the freedom to love. It's the freedom to be the people that God has made in his image. And what that freedom looks like, ironically, is slavery, is submission, is submission to each other. Now, back in Galatians 3, which you heard last week, Paul has said that there is no longer slave or free, that we're all heirs of Christ together. Nobody, in other words, has earned their place with God by their own works or by their own status. And so Paul's call here for us to be slaves of one another is a call for us to recognize that new reality in the way that we live with each other. That we're to love one another. That we're to serve one another. And see, one of the shames of of moralistic, therapeutic deism is that it's ultimately self-centered. It thinks about ourselves and our own moral goodness. It thinks about ourselves and whatever benefits we might obtain from from God. But what Paul calls us to with the gospel of freedom, the freedom to love, is to look up from our sort of navel-gazing, self-righteous, self-indulgence and look up into the needs and to the eyes and to the hearts and the lives of other people so that we can love them. You see, self-righteousness is ultimately a kind of self-indulgence. It's all about ourselves. And in the same way that that the desires of the flesh that Paul talks about a a little bit later in in the chapter are are, are about ourselves. But the gospel is about freeing us to love. Freeing us to love and look after others as Christ has loved us and looked for us. And so the good news of freedom in Christ is the good news that we are made free to love others one another, to look up, to look up so that we may look for others, look out for other people and, and, and to love them in the name of Christ. How can we possibly do this? And that brings us to what Paul talks about with us being free 
in the Spirit. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he gives you this whole list of things that are, uh, are the obvious works of the flesh, he says. And he doesn't even go into these in details. He says that this stuff is obvious. We know what the works of the flesh are. and We know what all of those things are. It's almost as if we don't even need to go into detail. We know exactly what that stuff is like. We know what self-indulgent behavior is. He says, in contrast to that, by the Spirit that has given us life, we may now have the fruit of the Spirit, which he says is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against those things. See, Paul's message here, that we are no longer bound by the works of the law, is not to say that we simply get to do whatever we want and live in a sort of self-indulgent way. He's saying the exact opposite of that. What he's saying is that if you've been made alive by the Spirit, if you've been made alive by Christ, then it's going to change your entire outlook on the world. And these, and these things that you are called to do, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, self-control, that is going to be just born out of who you are because God is in the process of making you alive and changing your heart. Now, to give you a, a kind of an example of this or a way to think about this, I want to talk about two guys from the 18th century. One uh, was named Immanuel Kant. Uh, he was a Prussian philosopher uh, who wrote about what it means for us to, to live a moral life. And for Kant, a moral life was about duty. We do the right thing because it's the right thing. And our, our intentions matter because our intention to do the right thing is how, how our actions should be judged. But it's about whether we follow the moral precepts that everyone universally should follow. Sounds kind of like the commands of the law. We're expected to follow these things and do the right things and have the right intentions toward other people as a matter of our duty. Immanuel Kant wasn't so concerned about whether that produced joy or love in our life, whether or not we really wanted to do it. All he was concerned about was whether we intended to do the right thing with our actions, whether we intended to, intended to obey the duties that were upon us. Now, in contrast to Immanuel Kant, there's a guy writing and working and preaching in uh, 18th century England named John Wesley. And what John Wesley said was that, you know, you may not desire or want to do the right things. You might not want to worship God. Your heart might not be in the right place to participate in the means of grace and communion um, and the worship of the church. Uh, your heart might not be in it when you love your neighbor, but you should do it anyway. And what you discover as you love your neighbor, what you discover as you worship God, is that God begins to transform your heart by the, by the power of the Spirit. And to transform what Wesley called your tempers, your dispositions, and your affections, what you love. And as you loved God and grew in holiness, all given to you by the grace of God, that your heart itself, your life itself would be transformed so that you would learn to love the things that God loves. And God would actually transform you in the very core, the very heart uh, of who you are, in your very being. And that's what Paul is talking about here. The freedom that we are given by Christ is a, is a freedom from our old slavery to ourselves. It's freedom from slavery to the law. It's a freedom that enables us to love one another and love the things that God loves. That's what true freedom looks like. There's a prayer from St. Augustine that you may have heard before in which he says that, um, 
God, in God's service is perfect freedom. In loving one another, we find perfect freedom. That's the gift offered to us by God through the Spirit. And so I think the question for us this week, as we go home, as perhaps you read through uh, Galatians this afternoon or later in this week, the question for us to ask ourselves is, are we made alive by this Spirit that God has given us, the Spirit of freedom in Christ? Are we guided by the Spirit that God has given us? If we've been made alive by the Spirit, then we don't have to convince ourselves that we are in the right with God because of our good behavior, whether that's following Torah or following our own lists of uh, what it means to, to be moral. If we're guided by the Spirit, then that means that God will open up our hearts to love other people. If we're guided by the Spirit, then it means that we no longer have to be self-indulgent, either the kind of self-indulgence that just gives ourselves over to our fleshly desires or the kind of self-indulgence that makes us self-righteous. But instead, that Spirit will bear in us the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Because God is transforming, the Spirit is transforming and changing our very hearts. Now that doesn't happen overnight, It doesn't happen overnight, Um, but it does happen. It does happen by the gift of God, the gift of growing in holiness, of growing with him. And so as we we come and sing our final hymn for today, I invite you to to ask these questions of yourself. Perhaps you uh, are new here, uh, or perhaps you've been here for a while, and you say, you know what, I want to dedicate myself to that kind of life, the kind of life where I trust the Spirit of God through Christ to make me alive, Uh, And to change me, to make me love the things that God loves. And if that's you, I would love uh, to see you here in the front. Uh, And perhaps we can all join in rejoicing in that new commitment with you together. But let's sing and let's pray and let's lift up our hearts to God. Amen. Amen.